my name's Austin. Uh, I'm on the team here, and um, occasionally, Trevor needs a little rest and a break from teaching. Um, and I have to say this, for my, gosh, four years here at the church, it has been such an honor for me to sit underneath the teaching of Trevor um, and the, kind of the, the growth that I've experienced because of just his faithfulness to the word and to the gospel has been immense. And so if he's made even a fraction of that kind of impact on you, you know that it's significant. And so can we just honor Trevor and his family just for their, their faithfulness with this church? Um, well, for the rest of 30 minutes, you're stuck with me instead. Um, but, you know, Jim did such a good job a minute ago talking about the three things that we're passionate about. Knowing Jesus, growing in faith, and going and serving the world. You know, we do these three things, and we kind of focus all of our energy around it because we think the gospel is not just a story, but the gospel actually changes our lives. It brings us into new life and into new relationship with God. Uh, the reason why we exist is that every single person in Los Angeles would experience not just a story, but the life-changing power of the gospel. And so this morning we're going to talk a bit about that, but this morning we're, we're beginning about a five-week series on the Holy Spirit. And specifically over the next five weeks, we'll talk about the experience of the Holy Spirit, the filling of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the sealing of the Holy Spirit, and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you've been journeying with us for a couple of weeks now, uh, last week we had the kind of the unique Sunday of remembering Ascension Sunday, that Sunday in which Jesus rises, ascends the Father, and once again promises his disciples that the Holy Spirit will come and fill them. And so here we are seven days later celebrating Pentecost Sunday, that moment in which the disciples have waited, and now they're being filled with the Holy Spirit that's been promised all throughout Scripture. And so as we remember Pentecost Sunday this morning, this filling of the church with the Holy Spirit, we'll spend four more weeks after this just diving more and more into the Holy Spirit. And so this morning we'll be in Acts chapter 2. So if you have your paperback Bibles or your smart screen, you can start to make your way towards Acts chapter 2. We'll be in verses 1 through 41 this morning. And, so, and as you turn there, uh, Luke makes it really clear um, to his audience why he's writing this. Luke is writing this letter to someone named Theophilus concerning all the things the disciples said and did in the book of Acts. And, and towards the end, Luke says this, that the primary thing the disciples were doing is they were proclaiming the kingdom of God. And they were teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. We start this morning in Acts chapter 2 because it is the infilling of the Spirit that empowers them to go out and to proclaim the kingdom of God and to teach about Jesus with all boldness. And so this morning when we talk about the experience of the Holy Spirit, we'll talk about three things. First is that uh, an experience of the Holy Spirit is always preceded by worship and waiting. Secondly, presently, when we experience the Holy Spirit, it is kind of this wonder-filled moment. It fills us with awe. 
And third, when we experience the Holy Spirit, it's always preceded by the teaching about Jesus, the proclaiming of the King of God. In other words, the, the proclamation of the Word. And so I, I want to start with this. Uh, one of my favorite bands, and they've been one of my favorite bands for the longest time, is Coldplay. Uh, since I was in high school. And one of the things that I love about Coldplay is just there is just this sense of transcendence about their music. It, it's less, it's not so much just these simple pop songs. They are these, you know, these tunes that kind of make you feel like, man, this is such a, a grand song that kind of lifts your soul and your spirit. And I'm not much of a live music guy. I prefer listening to music at my house. But occasionally I'll go to the concert. And so I was in high school and went to my, my first, maybe, you know, my first Coldplay concert. And it was just such this incredible experience. I'd never been to a concert kind of of this magnitude. You know, every concert I'd seen before then was in some little small venue in Tulsa without lights and without a great sound system. And, you know, it was just, you know. A little dingy. But a Coldplay concert was different. You know, you'd go and you'd show up early because you wanted to make sure like, you, you found your seat and you were properly situated. And then you had to listen through two bands you really didn't care about to wait for Coldplay. And as, you know, these two bands play and you know that Coldplay is up next, something begins to happen in the environment. All the empty seats begin to get filled because people have finished purchasing their merchandise. They slowly kind of lower the lights in the room. The stage lights come up. There's this kind of this soft music that begins playing. And all of a sudden, you kind of hear the roar and the rush of this crowd beginning to chant, cold play, cold play, cold play. In other words, it's kind of this transcendent, worshipful moment in which this large group of people have been eagerly waiting and anticipating the arrival of Coldplay, and before Coldplay hits the scene, the entire environment begins to shift and to change. When we get to Acts chapter 2, there's a, a similar thing happening here. The disciples are all gathered in this upper room, and what we learn in the text beginning in Acts chapter 1 is this room is full of more than just the 11 apostles, disciples at this point. The text would say there's probably upwards of 120 people in this room. And it's men, it's women, and because the men and the women are there, their children are most likely there as well. And the text says that they, they begin meeting, and they begin waiting, and they begin praying for the arrival of the Holy Spirit that they heard John the Baptist talk about. And that Jesus has just most recently, a few days ago, re-promised to the disciples. And it's interesting, they begin waiting they begin worshiping, they begin praying, and they have no idea how long they are going to have to do this for until the Holy Spirit arrives. But they want to follow the words of their master, their Lord, their Messiah, Jesus. They're going to wait for the Holy Spirit. And so you have this kind of intergenerational, multi-generational group of 120 people all gathered in this room worshiping and waiting together on the Holy Spirit. So Acts chapter 2, verse 1 begins with this. When the day of Pentecost came, Pentecost was this big celebration in Israel. It was, you know, the second of three kind of festivals and feasts uh, that folks would participate in. You could kind of imagine a, a July 4th kind of event. 
it's this moment which tons of people gather together in a really small space to celebrate. And Pentecost is this moment in which folks come to, to celebrate their first fruits. They come bringing the first of their wheat and their barley to the temple, celebrating that God had provided again. This moment was typically about 50 days after the Passover event. And so it's this kind of special day in Israel's history that they celebrate every single year. And so, so when the day of Pentecost came, these 120 folks, they hadn't stopped waiting. They hadn't stopped worshiping. They hadn't stopped praying. They were all together in one place. And in verse 2, then there was a sound like the blowing of a violent wind. It wasn't a violent wind, but it was a sound like a violent wind that came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. There's this sound filling the room. Verse 3, they didn't just hear something, they saw something. And they saw what seemed to be. Now, it, it wasn't this, but it seemed like tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. In other words, they're hearing this sound and they're seeing this thing that's like wind. And it seems like tongues of fire, but it's not quite wind and it's not quite tongues of fire. But something really unique is happening in their midst. And these tongues of fire separated and came to rest on each of them. And then verse 4. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. You can imagine this scene. It isn't just kind of this intellectual moment the disciples are having. They're having a very sensory moment. They're, they're hearing this sound that sounds like wind. They're seeing this thing that appears to be tongues of fire, but it's not quite tongues of fire. One of the early church fathers will extrapolate on this, and he'll say, and it smelled wonderful as well. That early church father is just kind of bringing attention to the idea that this moment in the book of Acts is a very sensory moment. Uh, the Bible calls these kinds of moments uh, theophanies, these moments in which people encounter God in a very sensory kind of a way. And scholars draw a parallel between what's happening in this moment in Acts chapter 2 and what happened in Sinai in Exodus chapter 19. This is Exodus 19, verses 16 through 18. It says, on the morning of the third day, there was thunder, lightning, fire, if you will, with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud sound. In Acts, it's the sound of wind. Here, it's the sound of a trumpet blast. And it says, everyone in the camp experienced this, and they began to tremble. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Verse 18, Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire, and the smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. Exodus chapter 19, this encounter with God is filled with sight and sound and probably the smell of smoke. And here in Acts chapter 2, they're hearing this violent wind. They're seeing what appears to be tongues of fire. And early church fathers would say it smelled like a sweet fragrance as well. In other words, the disciples are having this theophany moment on this day of Pentecost. And I love what it says in verse 4. 
It says everybody in the room, the men, the women, and probably children there gathered with them, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, 120 of them. You know, when we look throughout the Old Testament, we find these moments in which momentarily and sporadically and just on a couple of people, the Holy Spirit will fall. But the Old Testament is constantly looking forward to this day in which everybody would experience the Holy Spirit. Here's just a quick little survey. This is Numbers chapter 11. Uh, this thing is happening in the camp of Israel. And there's about 11 folks, that, or these elders of the camp begin to prophesy. And most of them are kind of prophesying um, near the center of gravity of the camp. And some are kind of on the outskirts of the camp. And uh, one of uh, Moses' like, right-hand folks comes by and says, dude, there's these people that are prophesying outside of probably where they should be. Uh, you should put an end to this. Uh, and Moses says in Numbers chapter 11, Moses replies to him, should it not be so? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would pour out his spirit on all my people. Later on, Joel, one of the prophets, will prophesy in Joel chapter 2, 28 to 29. He says, and afterward I will pour out my spirit on everybody. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Verse 29, even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in the days to come. So there's this Old Testament looking forward to this moment. Luke chapter 3, verses 16 to 17, John is speaking. And John speaks to this crowd. He says, I baptize you with water. But one who is more powerful than me uh, will come. The straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. And when he comes, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And so there's this anticipation. The disciples are, you know, near Jesus. saying, man, Jesus is the one who's going to do this. And then in Acts chapter 1, verse 4, before Jesus ascends, it says, on one occasion while he was eating with the disciples, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And the disciples are thinking, dude, enough already, just do it. They've been reading the Old Testament pointing towards this day. They've heard John the Baptist talk about it. They've heard Jesus talk about it. And so here we are in Acts chapter 2, in which the men, the women, the children gathered together worshiping, waiting, and praying. They're all filled with the Holy Spirit. These kind of theophany moments remind me of my time experiencing tornadoes in Oklahoma. When you're in Oklahoma and you're experiencing a tornado watch, man, the environment begins to change pretty quickly. You'll hear this sound that sounds like a train, but it's really just the, the sirens going off warning you a tornado's coming. You see this black wall that begins to fill the sky, but really it's just a really dark, long, thick wall cloud. You begin to smell kind of that sweet fragrance before it rains of flowers and spring rain. The entire atmosphere begins to change when a tornado begins to roll through. And here, 
the disciples are having this tornado-like moment. They're hearing this sound. They're seeing this thing. The environment and the atmosphere is changing. And it's not just for a couple of them. All of them are experiencing this. I love what one of the early church fathers says when he talks about the Holy Spirit filling everybody. He says, for just as fire kindles, not just a couple of lamps, but a fire will kindle as many lamps as it will. So here, the abundance of the Spirit was shown. Each one of the 120 men, women, and children received a spring of the Spirit, just as he himself said they would, that those who believe in him shall have a spring of water, a spring of the Spirit gushing up eternal life. You know, we should anticipate that when we worship and wait on the Holy Spirit, that we will have kind of unique environmental shifts in the atmosphere. Now, I'm not talking about wind that sounds like a train or the descending of fire, but sometimes when a group of people gathers together worshiping and waiting on the Holy Spirit, you can experience just kind of a a quietness fall over the room of reverence and holiness before God. It's almost kind of this sensory thing you experience. Sometimes the opposite. Sometimes joy just begins to burst forward and praise begins to be sung at the top of your lungs and you think this is more than just an ordinary worship service. The Holy Spirit is among us. Sometimes when the spirit descends, you can feel the atmosphere become somber as a congregation will repent of their sin, be aware of their sin, come before God with, as the Old Testament would say, with sackcloth and ashes repenting. We ought to feel comfortable that when we wait on the Holy Spirit, when we worship and we're eager to be filled with the Holy Spirit, that sometimes silence will come over a congregation. Sometimes joyful praise, sometimes repentance, but sometimes the atmosphere shifts just a little bit. And so one of my questions for us this morning is, are we carving out enough time to wait for the Holy Spirit? Are we carving out enough time to worship the Holy Spirit? You know, in today's day and age, we can be so quickly distracted by social media that we stop waiting on the Holy Spirit. So quickly distracted by that show we're watching on Netflix and Hulu that gives us all the episodes at the same time so we can binge watch for hours. Sometimes that interrupts our waiting. Sometimes living in Los Angeles, we just we pack our lives with so many activities and the traffic around us is so bad that we don't quite have enough time to worship and to wait. And so in this season of Pentecost, what are some things that you might think about carving out of your life to spend extended time waiting on the Holy Spirit? Because all throughout the text, the experience of the Spirit is preceded by people waiting on the Spirit, worshiping and praying. That's point number one. The experience of the Spirit is always preceded by worship and waiting. Secondly, the experience of the Spirit is always kind of presently this, this wonder-filled moment. Acts 2, verse 4 says, All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they all began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Verse 5, 
Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. In other words, Pentecost was such this unique festival uh, that some scholars would say that uh, there was no time throughout the year in which Jerusalem was more cosmopolitan than it was in this moment. People gathered not just from southern Israel, not just from northern Israel, but from all over the Mediterranean area. If you were a God-fearing Jew or a proselyte, you came from all over the region into the space. And so it's filled with all kinds of people from every single nation under heaven. Very kind of multi-ethnic cosmopolitan. And verse 6 says, when this crowd heard this sound, they came together in bewilderment. Because each one of them had this experience where they heard their own language being spoken. And so it's this moment in which multiple languages are kind of all being spoken at once. And verse 7 says this, the crowd became utterly amazed, utterly filled with wonder. And they asked themselves, aren't all of these who are speaking, aren't they all Galileans? Galileans were um, considered kind of a, a backwater people, people that had this kind of really unique accent that kind of really said, ah, you're kind of from lower income, lower class, backwoods, Oklahoma. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm from Oklahoma. But when you think of Oklahomans, I know what you think about. <laughs> Aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? And then it kind of goes on this list, verse 9. Uh, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and all the parts of Libya near Cyrene. Visitors all the way from Rome. I mean, this table of nations is showing you, man, there are people from all over the known world for the most part at this time. And they're all hearing these people speak in their languages. Verse 11 continues, both Jews and converts to Judaism. We hear them, watch this, we hear them not just speaking cleverly in our own language. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Verse 12, amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? When we talk about these disciples at this moment, speaking in other languages, the wonders of God in their own tongues. Uh, the Old Testament oftentimes uses this phrase, uh, wonders of God, or the mighty acts of God, to speak about the way that God had intervened in Israel's history, specifically including the Exodus and the wilderness events. In other words, when the disciples are speaking the wonders of God, they aren't just speaking these kind of intellectual truths about God. They are speaking about the actual events of God in human history, of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, the way Israel was in slavery and they were came and redeemed and the way they wandered around the wilderness and everything God had done up until them, even until the present moment. So in other words, this just isn't this moment of impressing people that all these languages are being spoken. It's all these languages being spoken, retelling the story of God with his people throughout history. 
It reminds me of Washington, D.C. just a little bit. Had the chance to go there a few months ago. And uh, my experience in D.C. was, man, very quickly I had this experience that it was probably the most cosmopolitan city I had ever been to. I took four different Ubers in a row, and in every single Uber, my Uber driver was from a different nation and spoke a different language. It, it was absolutely amazing. And one of the days, I got to kind of go out and visit the mall, go from monument to monument. And it's such a unique experience going from you know, um, the Washington Monument to the Jefferson Memorial, to the monument to Abraham Lincoln, to the World War II thing. What's so interesting about it is everywhere you go, you see groups of people um, that are being guided by a tour guide. And in most of these groups, in various groups, different languages are being spoken because people are visiting Washington, D.C. from all over the world. And in all these small groups of people of their tour guide speaking French here, Spanish here, a Southeastern a Asian language here, an African language here, whatever it is, they're all telling the same story of what's happened in America. And oftentimes, they retell the story not just to remember the past, but to try and tell people, this is kind of the, this is the culture of America. And these are some of the events that have shaped it and kind of where America is trying to head. This Pentecost moment is a very similar moment in which the disciples are speaking these various languages to these groups of people from all over the world, and they're all sharing the story of God with his people not just to give them a history lesson, but to give them a sense of where history has been headed all along to the culmination of Jesus. One of the early church fathers, Bede, kind of talks about this moment this way. He says, now the Holy Spirit appeared in fire and in tongues because all those whom he fills, he makes simultaneously to burn and to speak, to burn because of him, and to speak about him. And at the same time, he indicated that the holy church, when it had spread to the ends of the earth, was to speak in the languages of all the nations, telling the story of God with his people and what had been accomplished in Christ. This is one of the reasons why I love short-term missions. Throughout high school and college, I had the chance to go on multiple short-term trips that sent me to cultures that were certainly not my own. Western Europe, Eastern Europe, Africa, Southeast Asia. And every church we went to, they never spoke English. But it was amazing to gather with these congregations and with these pastors and to sit through. I mean, if you think our service is long, go to one of these services. But you would, you, you would sit through these worship services of folks singing praises to God in a language that was not your own. And you would listen to the proclamation of the gospel in a language that was not your own. And you go on several of these kinds of trips and you recognize, man, God is so big and he's so vast. And all the nations of the earth and all the tongues of the earth are declaring his glory, singing his praise and declaring the gospel to these people. When we experience the Holy Spirit, it, it ought not to surprise us when it's a multi-ethnic, multilingual experience. And so I want to encourage us with this. Um, when you experience the Holy Spirit, you know, in this moment, the crowd is bewildered. 
it says they're utterly amazed. When you begin to have this encounter with the Holy Spirit, do you allow it to fill you with awe? Or sometimes do you analyze it to death and it doesn't fill you at all? In other words, there's this moment right after they talk about being utterly amazed. Verse 13 says this, some of the people, however, made fun of them and said they've had too much wine. This is kind of a a funny jest, and Peter's reply is equally as funny in my opinion. But it's worth noting here that there's, the text would actually indicate that some of these people that began to make fun of them were God-fearing Jews, proselytes that had been converted. And I want to caution all of us, including myself, that sometimes when we experience the Holy Spirit, we can miss it altogether because it's not what we are expecting it to look like or to sound like or to be like. In other words, as Christians, we ought to be really open-handed when we experience the Holy Spirit and say, dude, what's going on? Not, I'm just going I'm, I'm to downplay this and minimize it because it doesn't fit inside of my box. Now, I love order in the church. I love order in worship. And sometimes we ought to be open to being utterly amazed at what the Holy Spirit does. Allow ourselves to be filled with wonder. It's point number two, the experience of the Spirit is always this wonder-filling moment. This is the third and final point. Uh, The experience of the Spirit is always preceded by the proclamation of the Word, Uh, this kind of theophany moment happening. It's sound, sight, maybe smell. And then these people say, dude, this is amazing. We're we're hearing the gospel proclaimed in our own tongue. We're we're hearing the story of God with his people proclaimed in our own tongue. And then Peter stands up, and he gives this speech before everybody. We're not going to read the speech because it's about 20 verses of speech. But in Acts chapter 2, verses 14 to 21, Peter references the Old Testament. He references that passage, Joel chapter 2, verses 20 to 32, in which everybody, sons and daughters, men and women, would be filled with the Holy Spirit, and now that's happening. Verse 22 to 24, Peter then pivots and talks about the death the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. Verse 25 to 28, Peter then references again Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. It's this messianic kind of psalm that talks about the ascension of Jesus, the the messianic nature of Jesus. After that, verses 29 to 33, Peter again talks about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And then in verses 34 to 35, Peter references Psalm 110, and then in verses 36 to 41, Peter calls the crowd to repentance, baptism, and to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And the text says, and 3,000 were added to their number that day. In other words, when this incredible moment of the Holy Spirit happens, what doesn't happen is Peter and the disciples begin to go into some long dialogue about the gifts. Or to say, let me tell you how I'm tapping into this gift of tongues. Or let me re-impress you and begin to speak in one of these languages again. In fact, when this momentary event happens in which people are filled with wonder at the Holy Spirit, they are so quick to point everybody to Christ and his death, his burial, and his resurrection and to call the crowd to repentance, 
to be baptized and filled with the Holy Spirit. And otherwise, the gifts are never about the gifts. The gifts are always to point us to the giver. The Holy Spirit is never, he never fills us just for these wild moments we might experience occasionally. The Holy Spirit always fills us. We always experience the Holy Spirit to point people to Christ. To not make much of ourselves, to make much of him. It's this moment in which you've, you've probably been here. One of your peers in high school, college, or beyond does something amazing. Captures the attention of the crowd. And then you hear everybody chanting, speech, speech, speech. That's this moment. This amazing thing happens and the crowd is chanting speech to Peter. And his speech is, repent, be baptized. Be filled with the Spirit. Turn your eyes towards Christ. So we talked about the experience of the Spirit is always preceded by the Word. It's always preceded by the proclamation of the gospel, that people would not look at us and not look at a gift and not seek an experience, but simply look to Christ. And so now we want to kind of pivot towards communion. And this is a moment when, when we read a text like this, we kind of think, man, how does this, how does this kind of come full circle? And, uh, and I'm always nudged to remember that when I come before the text, I, I am simply a creature that has been created by God. And for me, that kind of begins to bring so much clarity to things. I, I, I am not an accident and I did not make myself, but I'm a creature created by the creator. And when I read a passage like this, this may be true of you, but it's certainly true of me, um, that I have not lived my life faithful to waiting and worshiping the Holy Spirit. I have lived a life of distraction, whether through sports, TV, movies, social media, entertainment. I have at times crowded out waiting and worshiping the Holy Spirit because of distraction. So in this space, I've, I've fallen short of waiting on my creator. And at times, I've not allowed myself to be filled with wonder at the Holy Spirit. Much more find myself awestruck by the things people do as opposed to what the Spirit does. And so when I, when I look at my life in this text, I think I'm very quick to say, oh, those folks are they're kind of drunk on wine. They're kind of doing a unique kind of strange thing over here. Oh, but this TV show is, cinematography is great. I've not lived a life being filled with wonder. And in moments in which the spotlight has come on me for one reason or another, I'm guilty of not always pointing people towards Christ, but actually appreciating basking in the glow for just a minute bringing more attention to myself instead of all the attention to Christ. And all this being not good at worshiping and waiting, not living a life filled with wonder at who God is and what he has done, living a life that isn't centered in response to the word or pointing people towards the word. It's good news that Christ has come. He's truly been the one that has waited and worshiped that lived his life in wonder of the Holy Spirit, that is the incarnate word 
among us that we would point people towards him. And through his death, burial, and resurrection, we can be forgiven. We can be forgiven of being a distracted people, a non-wonder-filled people, people that don't live according to the word. And by God's invitation this morning, we can be forgiven of distracted lives, non-word-centered lives, and lives that are not filled with wonder.